brothers and sisters, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter number 8. Mark chapter number 8. I want to preach to you for just a little while, uh, kind of on the same subject of where our kids have been this uh, weekend. Uh, Of course, the theme is submerged, going deeper into the Word of God and deeper into the Gospel. And so I can think of uh, no deeper topic to discuss than who Jesus is and what Jesus wants you to know about Himself. So Mark chapter number 8, and I want to read verse 27 through 38. And then I'm going to just make three points to you today. If you want to jot those down ahead of time so that you don't forget it. I just want to talk about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus demands of you. All right? And you see, as we read, if you can pick up on those, uh, those three thoughts. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus demands of you Uh, When Mark writes this gospel, many, many times in this book, he writes in that way. He'll write a whole section, and all three of those points will be in there. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what He demands of you. So follow along with me in verse number 27. So Jesus went out along the way with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, in Peter-like fashion, says, Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter very plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked, that is, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Would you take a moment and pray silently with me as I pray out loud for us that God would help us from this passage. Our Father, we come to you now. And we open your word, and we believe that it is inerrant and infallible and inspired. And we pray, God, that you'd take your very words and that you would teach us to be more like Jesus, that you'd show us who Jesus really is and what he came to do for us and what he demands of every person in this room. Lord, we pray for all of the boys and girls that are learning these truths and more, God, that they would accept it, that they would grow in time to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. They would follow him all the days of their life. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
And so the Bible says here that Jesus went out along with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you are uh, like geography, that's as far north as Jesus went in his ministry. It's, it's the far north there. And in fact, when you get to Caesarea Philippi, it's no longer Jewish anymore. It's, uh, it's Greek, it's Roman. And in fact, and you remember that passage where Jesus is saying, I, uh, this is the rock upon which I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus makes that statement about his church, he's at Caesarea Philippi and where all of the gods are worshipped in this great huge hole in a, in a big rock. And so Jesus looks at that big hole and that big rock and he says, all of these gates, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Jesus goes to the far north, he says, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And as Jesus did often, the way he would disciple people was by asking questions. And so he said, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? The disciples say to Jesus, they say, well, they answered him by saying, uh, John the Baptist. And you could understand that, right? Because John the Baptist was this kind of crazy prophet that comes out of nowhere proclaiming the truth of the Old Testament Messiah. Jesus is not John the Baptist. And others say you're Elijah. Certainly you might think that uh, Jesus would be Elijah because Elijah did all of these miracles and he raised the dead and, and uh, he crossed over the Jordan River and yet Jesus is not Elijah. And furthermore, they say, what does it say in your text, right? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say one of the prophets. And one of the other gospel writers say Jeremiah. And you know why they would think that Jesus might be Jeremiah or one of those prophets is because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, that he weeped over his people. And what does Jesus do? The Bible says that he wept over his people and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together to myself, but you will not repent. But then Jesus makes it much more personal. He comes down to him, he says, all right, I get that, but who do you say that I am? Folks, I just want to say to us today, we're having a great vacation Bible school, and we've got people here that have been members here 50 years, and we've got first-time visitors here today. And I, what I want you to know is the most important question in your life that you will ever answer is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Is he a good man? Is he a smart man? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a rabbi? Does Jesus have cute statements that you put on your Twitter account? Or would you say that you are the Christ? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, for all of his mess-ups and for all of the times that he puts his foot in his mouth, Peter amps up the volume and he says, you're the Christ. And in one of the other synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in one of the other ones, he says it this way. They say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How about that for a Bible answer, right? I assure you that if one of the kids in Vacation Bible School answered the question this week, he's the Christ, they got the answer right. They got a gold star from Brittany. What does it mean to be the Christ? The word Christ comes from a Hebrew word, Meshua, and you would know that better as Messiah. 
and in the Old Testament, this is the promised one. From the very book of Genesis all the way into the New Testament, all of the Old Testament, it is not historical, it's prophetic. It's pointing you to the one who is coming. In Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 15, God had created Adam and Eve perfect, put them in the garden, has set up everything right, and they sinned against God and were disobedient. They wanted to honor themselves and not God, and so God cursed the ground. He cursed them, and since then, all people have been in sin. The Bible says in the New Testament, for by one man sin entered into the world, and therefore death upon all people. And Genesis 3.15 says that I will send a seed of the woman, and I'll put enmity between you and the seed and her people and your people. And the rest of the Old Testament is asking the question, who is the seed that will come to redeem the people of God? Was it Abel? No, because Cain killed Abel. Was it Noah? Noah found righteous in the eyes of the Lord through faith, and yet when he gets off the boat, what's he do? He tips back the mad dog 2020 and gets drunk in the garden. And the rest of the Old Testament is looking for the Messiah, the Christ. You know what the Christ does? He comes to do what you cannot do and what I cannot do and what none of the children in this building can do. That is to fulfill the law of God and be good enough to go to heaven when you die. The Bible says in Romans chapter number 8, verse number, number 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus for what the law could not do in itself, Christ did for us. All of the righteousness that God demands for you to go to heaven was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your regret and all of your guilt and all of the past lives and the skeletons that you have crawling out of your closets and underneath your bed, Jesus died for your sins so that if you put your faith and trust and confidence in Christ alone, He would wash away your sins. He would give you new life. And when you die, you would go to heaven. Is that what you want? Is that what you believe about Jesus? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Hey, Jesus warns them, and that's what it says in the next verse. He warns them and says, hey, don't tell anybody about this yet because I've not gone to the cross. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. What did Jesus come to do? Look at the next section in your verses. It says here, and Jesus began to teach them about the Son of Man. And the title, the Son of Man, is simply a divine title for Christ, for the Godhead, that Jesus is both God and man in one person, two natures in one person, unmixed. Why? So that He could identify with His people and still be God and die for us. And He began to teach them concerning the Son of Man. And then what does it say? That He must suffer many things. And the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that He is the Lamb of God slain when? Before the foundation of the very earth. It has always been in the deck of cards that Jesus would walk the way of Calvary down the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem carrying the cross, dying and bleeding for your sins and my sins. That's always been in the plan. That he must suffer many things. Look at your text. That he must suffer many things. And then not only that, but he must be rejected. What does Isaiah 53 say? We did esteem him, stricken and smitten of God, rejected of men. 
He must be rejected. Who? Who rejects him? The elders? The chief priests? The scribes? Do you see what that text is telling you? The most religious people of Jesus' day turned from him and rejected him and would not receive him. It's not a matter of how much religion you have, how many churches you've been in, how many times you've been dunked underwater, or how many times you've made some sort of sincere commitment. The issue here is this. Do you believe on Jesus to save your soul? Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone? Katie says up there she was a little nervous. She did a marvelous job. She is not trusting her own effort. She's not trusting the water. She is trusting Jesus alone for salvation. You don't have to be rich, and it doesn't matter if you're poor, black or white, red, yellow, no matter where your uh, socioeconomic status is, if you're here today, it doesn't matter. We want you to know that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He'll take you just like you are, but He won't leave you who you are. He'll change you from the inside out. Rejected of these elders and chief priests and scribes. And then what's it say? The gospel and be killed, and three days later, rise again. And then what's the next verse say? He was saying these things plainly. I just want to say to you, in the time that I have left today, listen to me. I, I've been convicted about this all week. Do you see where it says that? And he was saying those things plainly. I want to say the gospel to everybody in this room, whether you've been saved a hundred years, or whether you're lost and you're visiting, or whether you're skeptical, I want to be a preacher that says it plainly. Jesus is the Son of God. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. And if you turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, He'll give you eternal life. Not somewhere out in the future, right now today. And he was saying it plainly, and then look what, it, you know, Peter always puts his foot in his mouth. Isn't that what it says? Right? He said, well, you know, kind of in the Steve version. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took Jesus to the side and rebuked. Isn't that what it says in your Bible? He took him to the side and rebuked him. I mean, who has the audacity to do that to Jesus? Do you know why Peter took Jesus to the side to rebuke him? Because the kind of Messiah that Peter wanted in all the Jews of the day, they wanted somebody who was going to make America great again. Did you get that? <laughs> Their understanding of the Messiah was political, social, financial. Bring up the Jew and put down the Roman. Now, I'll criticize the other side too. It don't bother me. I'll get to take emails on Monday. I'm off tomorrow. Listen. <laughs> Yeah, we don't work all weekend. I'm taking a few hours off tomorrow. Now listen. You know why Peter rebuked Jesus? Because he was expecting a different kind of Messiah. He wasn't looking for one who would come humbly. And the Bible says in Philippians 2 that he would humble himself even to the death of the cross. But he did for you. And what's Jesus doing in the next verse? Look, look at your text. But turning and seeing his disciples, you see, I think Jesus saw here that the, the, the people, the disciples were looking to Peter. And so in a moment, Jesus turns around and he sees the disciples that they're listening to Peter. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now look, some of you in here might look at a piece of chocolate cake sometime and say, get behind me, Satan. All right. That's not what Jesus was talking about. 
He says, get behind me, saying, do you know why he refers to that? He goes on to say this, because your mind is set not on God's interest, but on man's interest. And that's what's wrong with every person in this room, including yours truly. We want our own interest rather than the interest of the living God of heaven. And do you know what God is interested in this morning? God is not interested in saving face in front of you. God is interested in saving you. And then, that's who Jesus is. He's the Christ. That's what Jesus came to do, to die on the cross, to be raised again, to give eternal life to those who would believe. And here's what Jesus demands of you. He gathered or He summoned the crowd with the disciples. Do you see that? Earlier on in the passage, He's just speaking to the disciples. Now He gets to that last set of Scriptures and He says, um, He summoned the crowd with the disciples and He said to them, Anyone... Anyone who desires to come after me, here's the three things you must do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Christianity is as simple as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Don't ever forget that. You can't just whisper some sort of little, uh, some sort of little prayer and take Jesus as if he's a buffet line where you take a little of that, but you don't like that, and you take a little of that, but you don't like that. You either take Jesus totally as He is, or you die in your sins and go to eternal destruction. Hell is the home for good-intentioned people that don't come to Christ. Take Him just like He is. What does He demand of you? Deny yourself right here today. Now hear me, this is both to lost people, skeptical people, and all of the believers in this church that this community is looking at. You must deny yourself. Do you know what you want to do? You want to make yourself the king of your life where what you want done is done and what you say goes, goes. And what Jesus wants you to do is lay down your weapons of pride, come to Him humbly, deny yourself, pick up the cross that is death to yourself and alive to Christ and follow Jesus all the days of your life. Are you willing to do that today? Let me take a little time out. I'm preaching the gospel. Let me take a time out for a moment and say to all the believers of this church, brothers and sisters, I, I, I can speak to you as your pastor and your shepherd. Don't be a gossiping, mean-mouthed, mean-spirited kind of person. It's the outside world here is looking on the inside. And if they don't see you getting along with each other where you're able to deny yourself and what you want and how the way you think it ought to be, hey, the way you think it ought to be may be the best way. But can I tell you something? There are some times in your life where you just have to be a brother or sister that lays that down for the sake of the gospel and unity and come together. And if the outside world sees us living where we are denying ourselves, taking up the cross of Jesus and following in His footsteps all the days of our life, that will speak volumes. But if they come into our midst and they see the kind of people that are selfish and mean and have to have it their way, or they pout and go take their toys and play in somebody else's sandbox, why do you think they would ever stay? What does Christ demand of you? He demands the same thing of you. He demands of every lost person in this room. Turn from yourself today. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Galatians 2.20 For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
Look at, uh, look at the last four, uh, four scriptures there in that text. You see how I, I think verse uh, 35, 6, 7, and 8, or 36, 7, and 8, you see how they all probably begin with the English word for? Whenever you see the English word for there in Scripture, it's a reasoning or an argumentation starter. So he says here, he summoned the crowd with the disciples, and he said, anyone who wants to follow after me must deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me. And what's the argumentation of why you should lay down your life and follow Jesus? For, here's the reason, here's the argument. For anybody that wants to save his life, that's the kind of person that's going to lose the life. If you spend all of your life trying to get and grab and go, get all the money you can, get all the way you can, you're going to get to the end of the life and find that you never find a U-Haul behind a hearse. You leave it all behind. And what if you have all the money in the world and you're a pauper in the next world? What does it gain? For whosoever tries to save his life, you're going to lose it. It'll slip right out of your hands. But whoever loses his life, that is, lays it down, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, that's the person that saves his life. What's the next line of argumentation? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I'm telling you, our teenagers and our children coming up, and I want to say to even all the adults here today, all that garbage you watch on TV, and I know sometimes you think, man, if I just had enough money, if I could just pay this, if I could just have that, everything would be all right. It won't be all right. Their lives aren't all right, and they're damned in their soul on the inside. They need Jesus. You can't have all of the world, and it suffice. For what should a profit a man or a woman or a boy or a girl? What should it profit somebody to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What's the next line of reasoning? For is there anything? For is there anything that you would give in exchange for your soul? I'll tell you one quick story. I was about 10 years old. Y'all remember David Copperfield, the magician? All right, I might be dating myself here. I thought David Copperfield was awesome. The dude could do all these magic tricks. And I went to this, like, I went to this small Christian school. Listen, and the guy came and he preached and he said, uh, he said, you know, every magician, they pray and sell their souls to the devil and that's the way they can do magic. Well, I mean, I didn't know. At that point, I didn't know anything about smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff. I watched David Copperfield so much at 10. I'm going to admit something to you. I remember being by myself. I'm glad. Aren't you glad that God doesn't answer some prayers? It's the middle of the summer, and I had watched, and David Copperfield had all the money, and he could do the coolest tricks, and he traveled everywhere. He could make the Statue of Liberty disappear. How awesome is that? And I remember when I was 10 years old being so wrapped up in the glitz and the glam of David Copperfield that I crept out a little prayer and said, I don't, I don't want to follow the devil all my life, but I'll follow you for a little bit if you'll let me be like that. <laughs> now, I'm just being, I'm trying to be as vulnerable and real with you, and there's some of you in here, you've done something similar, you just don't have the guts to say it. That's, how, that's, that's the way that money and fame and power will wrap its tentacles around your life. And some of you in here, you laugh at David Copperfield, but you know when you look next door to the neighbor or you look to the boat or you look to the next promotion or you look to what you're able to do and provide, 
and those tentacles creep up in your soul? Is there anything that you would give in exchange for your soul? Oh man, I'm, I'm so God, glad God didn't answer that prayer request. And I'm so glad that God has shown me the glory of Jesus Christ and the goodness of His mercy and kindness. You trust Jesus Christ and the things that He will do will last forever. He will restore your life. He'll restore your family. He'll give you a home in heaven. And He'll make you live a right-side-up life in an upside-down world. What's the last line of reasoning? Look at your text. Four. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus or Him or me, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, when the Son of Man comes again, I'll be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now listen, for some of my believers in here, and uh, you try to be faithful to the gospel and share the gospel, this isn't talking about that periodic time where you know that you should share the gospel with somebody, but you don't because you're nervous with it's a room full of people, okay? What's going on here is a habitual mindset that you're ashamed of Jesus and to make Him Lord of your life. You're, you came today... And you're kind of waiting for the kids and you're hoping the big guy shuts up real soon. When you walk out of here, you, you, you don't want anything to do. You don't want to identify. You don't want to give your life over. You don't want to become a religious fanatic and nut. You don't want to commit your whole life to Jesus. You're pretty happy where you are. You live that way ashamed of Jesus. And when he comes again, he'll be ashamed of you. And I just want to share my heart with you. I never want to stand in the place where the Lord Jesus would be ashamed of me. That's the truth of the passage today. Who is Jesus? He is the promised Christ of all eternity. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die and rise again so that men and women and boys and girls that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would have eternal life both there and here. And what does He demand of you? Lay down your life, pick up the cross, follow Jesus. Will you do that? Would you close your eyes, bow your heads with me just a moment? Hey, let's just take a moment just to pray. I know kids are going to come in in a minute. We're having a big time. We've got the cookout, all of that stuff. But hey, you might, not have, you might not have had two minutes the whole week just to be quiet and think between you and God. Right now, nobody looking around, please. Let's just let's be gracious to everybody. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, I want to encourage you to go over the gospel again in your own mind. Trust Jesus every day. Lay down your life. Pick up your cross. Follow Him. If you're here today, maybe you're a parent of one of our visiting kids. Maybe you've been here uh, for 20 or 30 years. Just say, Steve, you know what? I, for the first time today, I really believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He died and rose for me, and I want to commit. I want to give my whole life to Him today. Would you just, nobody looking around, I'm not going to call you forward. This is a different kind of day. Would you just slip your hand up so I can see it and then put it right back down? All I want to do is pray for you. Anybody like that here today? Say, you know what? Would you pray for me? I'm not sure that if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I see that. Anybody else this morning? Say, I'm just, I'm not sure if I died right now that I'd be right with God. Anybody else this morning? All right, brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for this one. And then we'll move into our time with the kids. Our Father, we love you. 
I pray that even on this unique day, that you would do a work in the heart of the people here. Father, there are some people in this room that are so nervous about the gospel that they might not even slip their hand up, but they know, and they're listening right now. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would seek uh, me or Jamie or Brian out before they leave today. Lord, that they would email us or call us or come by and see us. Lord, please burden and convict their heart until they put their full confidence and trust in you. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room that are believers and members of Emmanuel Baptist Church. May we be challenged today to lay down our pride and unkindness and attitude. May we learn to deny the very fabric of our nature, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus in love and unity and kindness. We thank you for this day, for it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.